There, he's in the world today. I know that he's living. Whatever men may say, I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. Now, the thing about this sentiment about the resurrection is that it entirely rests upon subjective feelings, and it concerns sort of a general uh, ethereal presence of Christ in the world, not ascended in his body in heaven, but somehow moving about in your midst. The hymn's author focuses on how he knows the Savior lives because of a hand of mercy and a voice of cheer, obviously metaphorical, and the song's chorus then concludes, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. And so his knowledge ultimately rests upon feelings rather than facts. Nowhere does he mention scripture or the historical witness of the church. The song is about some sort of mystical commitment to an idea. And having thought for a moment together about these lyrics, I wonder how well you think now that this hymn squares with Paul's rationale of the resurrection that we've already read in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-19. Did Paul emphasize the things that we mystically know in our heart and voices somehow that we hear even though Christ's body is in heaven? Or did he emphasize the facts of history? As we've worked through 1 Corinthians, we've seen the various ways that it is Paul's pastoral project to rewire this congregation in light of several significant problems that they were having. All of these issues nonetheless boiled down to the major issue of divisions amongst the people. They were divided over whose preaching they liked best when they needed to realize that all preaching, if it's effective, is empowered by God. They were divided by moral issues, not landing in the right place concerning the the practice of the Christian life. They were divided over issues about food that had been sacrificed to idols. They were divided in their understanding of and practices in gathered worship. There were divisions. And now in chapter 15, we learn that they had also misunderstood a truly truly gospel issue in every sense of the phrase. They had lost track of the truth about Christ's resurrection. Some questioning whether there even is a resurrection from the dead. Now, there's a question about why Paul would save this big, huge topic for here at the end of this letter, if this is such a, a crucial doctrine, a matter of first importance, why not tackle it first? And the fact that biblical commentators all seem to think that this is a, a baffling question, I, I think, at least from my perspective, simply shows how very few of them actually serve pastoral roles uh, as they comment on these things. Amidst a stack of problems to address, Paul most likely ordered these topics from issues that he could most easily take on. 
to those which would require the most care. There's one pastoral strategy when someone brings you a question about a practical matter wherein you, you first take a step back and address a more basic principle before then coming back around to, to tackle the practical aspect. On the other hand, you might give a direct answer to a practical question, but then press into the principle that undergirds that answer. And Paul seemed to work here with that latter approach from the, the most practical issue to the most principle. And so the structure here really does hold together because the previous issues seem rather disconnected or disparate, uh, unrelated uh, in some ways, disagreements about preaching and worship, I suppose, we could we could see the connection there to some degree. But eating temple foods and sexual immoralities certainly show the diversity of, of problems here. Yet, Paul's chapter on the resurrection ties them all together. In all of these things, the Corinthians had really forgotten bedrock principles of the gospel. They neglected that Christ has risen for the forgiveness of sins, entailing our resurrection, which brings brings real meaning to the things that we do together and with our bodies. And so our main point tonight is that Christ's bodily resurrection is a most important Christian belief. Christ's bodily resurrection is a most important Christian belief. And as we explore this, we should have three responses, three responses to the fact of the resurrection. Confirming, confessing, and confidence. Confirming, confessing, confidence. So let's think first about our response to the resurrection confirming. I wonder if you've ever wondered why there are so many books about church history. Right? Maybe maybe a lot of folks even, even here would wonder why someone would devote lots of time to studying what happened in the church of pa- in the church's past? Seeing, of course, uh, being an, a historian is a, a sure mark of at least half insanity, right? Um, but there's a rationale. Is there a rationale for why Christians, in particular, among the world's religions, see so much uh, value in exploring what our history is? Is there a reason for that? Grounded in being a Christian. Well, Buddhism has some, some historical points, but they're basically inconsequential to how to practice the religion. Hinduism, to the best of my understanding, does not rest on any concrete historical claims. Islam, I, I suppose, in some sense, is tied uh, to the events surrounding Muhammad supposedly receiving the Quran, but Doctrinal teaching is less inherently linked to specific events. Modern mysticism, which I think really is the biggest religious competition that the church faces today, 
is entirely about abstract ideas and feelings, a lot of times kind of rooted in in a pagan understanding of nature. But then, what about us? Christians love history because our entire faith, our entire faith is tied to the event of God's Son coming in our nature at a real time, in a real place, dying on the cross for our sin, a real wooden cross, and in many ways, most crucially, rising from the grave and ever living to intercede for us before the throne of God. Without without the factuality of these events playing out on, on the crust of the earth, like everything else that happens in history, without these events grounded in dates and locations, Christianity would be a sham without them. Our faith then revolves around historical realities. It cannot be disconnected from God's providence over the scope of world events, which will indeed culminate in the return of the Lord Jesus. So, this point here is about how the resurrection is is not something you feel in your heart, but true event that occurred in time as Christ walked out of the tomb. You can time stamp the premise of Christianity because it centers around the moment that Jesus came back to life so that he could intercede for you forever. Now, there are two ways in which Paul describes the resurrection event as an event for confirming. And the first one is that he tells us about historical testimony. Right? If someone, if someone tells you an incredible story, that's something that's hard to believe. Well, sometimes our instinct is to ask, how do you know? How, how do you know that that story is true? And so if, if your friend has told you this incredible story and you ask them that, they may say, well, I saw it. And if they're really confident in their answer, they may say, go ask so-and-so. They saw it. And in verses 5 to 8, here before us, Paul presents that same option. Christ wrote, to summarize, Christ rose from the grave. Go ask Cephas. Go ask the twelve. James, the apostles, or 500 other people. They For some reason, verse five, verses 5 to 8, uh, keep getting translated uh, as as he appeared to various people, but but there's a very easy literal translation of this. The Greek is not hard. It's a, it translates simply as he was seen by these various folks. Not he appeared. It's not conjectural. It's not perspective. It's re- he was seen by them. They put eyes on him. Paul was explicitly claiming eyewitness testimony to the event. How do you confirm an event in the court of law? Well, 
before DNA, before video recording, before all of that, who saw it? Paul says, here's at least 500 people plus some. Go ask. Now, some, some great scholarship in recent years has, has demonstrated that the progress of, of Christianity, the actions of the apostles, really the spread of the gospel and the development of the church in the earliest centuries doesn't make historical sense. Why these things would play out the way they did unless Christ truly did walk out of the ground in first century Israel. At least, unless people really did believe that. It doesn't, it doesn't work at the historical level as a conspiracy or anything like that. And Paul points to that same truth. Part of our proclamation is that people saw Jesus walking, talking, and living in his body in space and time as a fact of history. So the first confirming response is historical testimony. And the second, though, the second, uh, which in many ways is more important, way that Paul said the resurrection is confirmed is by the Scripture. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. There it is. In accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day. In accordance with the Scriptures. Christ's historical work is verifiable not only by the eyewitness testimony to the events, but also is the expected reality because God's Word holistically says so. Now, Paul was writing the New Testament here. And so when he says in accordance with the Scriptures, he means the Old Testament. And so what we have here before us is is that the full scope, the full scope of all Scripture confirms that God's saving plan was to act for His people in the historical work of Jesus as He rose from the grave to vindicate His people and bring them to salvation. The resurrection is for confirming as a real event in history. That's our first response, confirming. Second, our second response to the resurrection should be confessing. And by this I don't, I, in this instance, I don't mean confessing our sin, uh, as, although we should do that. Uh, but here I mean confessing the truth that Jesus rose from the grave. We're not just to know that Christ's resurrection happened, but we're also to proclaim it and announce what we know. Our faith is not locked on ethereal ideas, but on handing down, on handing down the announcement of the event that Jesus Christ strode out of the grave into incorruptible life. Guaranteeing that for you too. The passage emphasizes the receiving and handing down of truth. Verses 1 to 3. 
Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He's handing it. He's giving it there. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That word, delivered, uh, is the same word for tradition. I tradition, we don't have a, we don't have a verb for tradition. I traditioned to you what I've received. In, in other words, Paul was the conveyor of the Christian tradition of confessing the truth about Jesus. Notice, notice the colon after verse three or in verse three, signaling that Paul handed down this material, these statements that follow it. Verses 3, 3 to 4 in particular, but then also including the principle that people saw, the risen Christ. I don't, I don't think these statements as, as they stand, but the principle that people saw the risen Christ. Verses 3 and 4 are an early Christian creed. What do I mean by that? There, there's, this is formulated material for preserving a way of stating the truth. There is a rhythm and a structured order to this section, marking it as memorable for memorizing. Paul, and, and what we note here, right, is Paul had already handed this down to them, and now he's reminding them. He's basically saying, I taught you the creed about Christ's resurrection. Don't, don't you remember the creed I taught you? Hold on to it. And so if you, if you wonder why I make a big deal out of reading the scripture with the help of our confessions, well this is why. Because, because the Bible sets the precedent for preserving truth in creeds. They're in the, in the scripture, handing it down by confessing this truth stated in this way as the church. And so the Bible itself exhorts us to be confessional, to hold fast to particular claims. Because even if we can deepen our knowledge over time, the Christian church does not progress in what we know in terms of the the line items of what we know we we may come to a deeper understanding of christ rising from the grave but we don't understand anything different than christ rose from the grave in his body that doesn't get to change we know that christ burst from the ground alive and we don't adjust that If we ever give up that truth, if we ever give up that truth, we're not Christians anymore. We're something else. Jesus, Jesus isn't a feeling in my heart. Jesus isn't an ideal. 
Jesus isn't ephemeral truths that can shift as the human consciousness changes its values over the years. Jesus is God's Son who came to earth in our nature and who was put in the ground because the Romans nailed his real body to a real wooden cross. But in time, at a very specific moment, and then he opened his eyes, shook off whatever grave clothes bound him, and marched out of death, out of the tomb, right into the sight line of stacks of witnesses. That's what Jesus is. He's the risen Savior. My traditional stance and love for the confessions is is obvious to everybody who's been here more than once, or even maybe just once. But hopefully this helps us see why, why I think that's a biblical thing to do, that there's a biblical rationale for being that way. But there's a big question I know that's left at the end of this. What's the payoff? If our, if our second response to the resurrection is confessing it as the church, is there any other payoff to being confessional and maintaining our proclamation of the same truth that was handed down to us? And that brings us to our third point, confidence. Confidence. When I worked at Starbucks in California, I worked with a lady named Sue Drinkward. Sue was married to Chris. And when I met Chris, he had just recovered from severe bowel cancer that nearly killed him. And Chris was, an, was obviously godly, as was Sue. Ready to talk about their faith, their church, and the things that they were learning. Chris was one of the most joyful men I've ever known. And one of the things I remember most about him is that he so clearly loved his two sons so proudly. And being a wonderful father is one of the things that jumps out at me in thinking about him. And Chris's bowel cancer came back in a really terrible way. And since they had removed most of his intestines already, there was really nothing to do. And within a very few months, Chris Drinkward died. What do you think you say in that situation? Prince? In this world, I will never understand why when countless wicked men deserve this sort of thing, me for my inconsistent Calvinism later, deserve this sort of thing, God would let this happen to Chris, a faithful believer and a loving family man. So the next time that I saw Sue, it's what I did. I hugged her, and I said, 
We believe in the resurrection of the body. Because whatever I don't know about why God would have that happen, what I do know is that at the last day, God will pull Chris Drinkward from the grave and he will put him back in his body, cancer-free. So I believe in the resurrection of the body. Christian, let us remember that Christ has risen from the grave. That is our hope. And let us cling firmly to our confession that Christ has risen from the grave. Verse 12 ought to read, Now if Christ is proclaimed because he rose, not as, because he rose from the dead. We proclaim him because he rose from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The reason for Christian preaching at all is because Jesus lives not weirdly in your heart, but in his body, seated at the right hand of God. This historical fact governs every ounce of hope that we have in this life and the next. Because Christ rose from the dead, Christian, you know with firm confidence that God will pull you from your grave too. He will, he will roll back every instance of cancer. He will wipe away every disease. He will restore everything about us that has decayed. He will raise you from death and give you back your body better than ever before like Christ in glory. However you leave this life, because none of us make it out alive, however you leave this life, God will put you back in your body. Christian, on top of that, for your loved ones, who are in Christ, God will give them back to you because Christ is risen from the dead. And you will not, you will not merely see them again. You will hug them again because you'll have arms, because you'll have bodies risen from the dead. Christ Jesus lives And because of that, we are no longer in our sin. He removed the curse of the law from us, and his life is then our life. Vindicating his perfection, exalting him above all names, and securing our place in everlasting life. And so, Christian, let me just exhort you here in these moments ahead. What, how, how do we make a really concrete application of this. We're about to say the Apostles' Creed. And let's remember that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And so we lean into it when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Let's pray. Father God, we are glad that Christ is triumphant. We are glad that everything that seems like so much loss in the world 
is subject to Christ, who has conquered every enemy, the last enemy being death. And he has conquered it for himself. And even if we have yet to experience it, he has conquered it for us as well. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we worship the risen Savior, the Christ who died, was buried, but is dead no more, but who marched out of the grave victorious, having put away sin. Fill us with hope, Lord, and use us in the world to bring hope to others. We pray that for Christ's sake. Amen.